Um, let me pray, and then we'll look into God's Word today. So, God, we, we do love. Uh, we love the body of Christ in Bloomington. That We love your church, Jesus. Um, but we also love your Word, which gives us your people direction through your Holy Spirit. So, as we look into your Word, that we know it's not an academic exercise. It's not simply a words on a page, but your Holy Spirit can wake our hearts up, wake our ears up, wake our eyes up, so we see and hear things that you're saying to us clearly and directly, because that's what your nature of what you do. You're, you're a friend of ours, so you talk to us, and that's what we want this morning. We ask this on your name. Amen. So I'm going to start with a story. I, 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 uh, and go to the out. What do you think? So a number of years ago, I had a chance uh, had a chance to travel to the Israel, the Holy Land, and it was with a pastor from California that I really respect. His name, they call him Pastor Jack. And uh, I really respect his point of view on mostly everything. I mean, he just passed away recently. But we were, one, we were at a shrine. I think it might have been, it's the shrine where they think the manger was in Bethlehem. They don't really know because what's interesting, even after then Jesus died in his resurrection and all that, it wasn't like all of a sudden they, in, they put up, you know, tourist booths in Israel. Because for a while it was like, and then it wasn't for centuries later until they started trying to identify. So and there's one place they think the manger may have been, they don't know. And they've built this huge shrine over it where the floor is like marble or, you know, tile, really, you know. But anyway, we were there one time and there was, there were some women, I think they were Italian. I, I, I think they were. And they were... They were on their knees, kissing the floor, crying, wailing, kissing the floor. And honestly, for me, it kind of, I was kind of like, really? I mean, it felt like superstition. It felt like, wow. I mean, come on. I mean, it's like, but it felt superstitious. It felt kind of almost weird to me. So I'm just being honest, this is where my heart was. It wasn't a great place, but I just thought, this sounds weird. They're way too superstitious. And, and then I remember I asked, I saw the Pastor Jack out sitting outside. He had already been. I said, and I said it probably with a little contempt in my voice. Pastor Jack, what do you, what do you make of that? And I kind of said it that way. Like, why? And he said, I'll never, I'll, I will never forget his response to me. He said, you know what I've realized, Matt, over the years? And he said this, the mercy of God is enormous. It's bigger than we think. And in other words, instead of judging and condemning that act, he said, I'm just going to rely on the fact that the mercy of God is enormous. It's bigger than we think. And he, he, he sees things we don't see. He gives mercy and grace we don't. And it was, it was a necessary rebuke for me to hear him say, because what he's basically saying to me, you're not showing much mercy in that situation. He didn't say that, but he said, no, the mercy of God's enormous. He sees things. He sees the hearts of people, even if they're doing what we think might be superstitious or, or you know, incantation or whatever, but God sees their heart. And he says, the mercy of God is enormous. So I want, that phrase, the mercy of God is enormous, go to the next slide, though. I think it's on there. That's going to be the overarching phrase this morning as we kind of continue to look in the book of Acts so actually, say that line with me, the yellow line. Ready? Here we go. The mercy of God is enormous. All right? Enormous. Um, it's, it's, and even God describes himself as merciful. So uh, we're going to look at the book of Acts. The next slide, we're, we've been doing a series, or I've been doing a series from the book of Acts, and I'm calling it, the, well, we are the, this is who we are. We are the people of Pentecost. 
So the season of Pentecost in the church here usually only lasts a week or two, but I kind of stretch it out. So, and we'll do probably one more week until we switch to something else. Um, but so the book of Acts is the story of people who had been overwhelmed by the Spirit of God, and then all of a sudden they become so bold, so compassionate, so loving, and they change the world because they talk to people about Jesus. They go around the world. I mean, the missions, missionary movement started in the book of Acts. So whether we, we talked about Philip and Stephen, who was stoned, we talked about Peter, all these men and women through the book of Acts were examples of what, I'll just say it this way, ordinary people look like when they're infused with the Holy Spirit. So that's why I say this is who we are, because it's not, these aren't, it's, it's not like watching a superhero movie. It's not like, wow, look at these superheroes. They did super things, but not, un, nothing, like, nothing unlike what you and I can do with the Spirit of God in us. That's why I'm saying it this way, because we tend to read, we tend to, at least I tend to, or at least I grew up this way, reading the book of Acts in the same way I might read a Marvel superhero book. Wow, this is what really important, really supernatural people do. It's like, no, these are people who are human, like you and me, who had all kinds of issues, but the, the, the biggest thing that changed their life was the Holy Spirit, because Jesus told them it would be poured into them. So, <clears throat> last week, uh, we looked at Cornelius. I think I have the next slide up there. Yeah, so Acts 10, so we're going to start there. And then we're going to look at Acts 11. Again, the, the big theme is the mercy of God is enormous. So Acts 10 starts off with a, being told about a man named Cornelius. In Caesarea, with a Roman ar- army officer named Cornelius, he was a devout, God-fearing man. So Roman, they were over, they, if remember I said this last week, the Romans uh, occupied Israel, as they did most of the known world, like Germany did in World War II. So the, uh, they were unwelcome guests. The Romans, as a culture, were pantheistic. Many gods, you know, no. So, but this guy, Cornelius, is stationed in a small town in northern Israel. And the Bible calls him God-fearing and devout. He wasn't a God-fearing and devout pantheist. He didn't worship many gods. He came from that background. But somehow God had got his attention, and he was God-fearing true God and devout. He didn't understand the gospel. I mean, Jesus had just been raised from the dead probably months before. He didn't really even totally understand the Old Testament. But I talked about that because the Bible talks about, in the book of Acts, about a number of God-fearing people that weren't part of the in-group of the religion that was supposed to be there. When we look, they had God's attention. And I'm saying that because when we look at and we'll talk about this thing. When we look at, you know, you know people that are Christian or people around the world, world religions, that there's real good possibility, and I think it's probably true, there are God-fearing, devout people, not in, because of their religion, but somehow God's got their attention. They're, they're worshiping God without totally knowing it. And you might, I know that throws people, it throws me, but I'm just saying that, that, if Cornelius was a God-fearing man, the book of Acts talks about God-fearing people in Athens, which is Greece. They were not Jewish people. So there's this sense of God-fearing people that somehow God gets their attention. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just lock on that for a second because we're going to look at what happens after this. So now uh, this, I'm going to read part of Acts 10, 11, but I'm going to do it with this overlay. Go to the next slide. So I'm, I'm switching gears, but I'm not switching gears. All right, This is a picture of like 
people from all around the world, representing probably different religions, different continents, uh, many people who may not know who Jesus is, they know much about him, they haven't heard much about him. And maybe, maybe some of these people are God-fearing, devout people. So I'm just, I want to put that frame in there for a second. We'll talk about some of the things about Jesus. But let me just read the part of the, part of the story about Cornelius. But what I want you to think about some of these people, too, that maybe their attention, maybe they're giving attention to the true God, and God notices them, all right? So I'm going to read, the, I'm going to read Acts 10, part of it. But I want you to think about not just Cornelius, but these are the Cornelius of today's world. People that didn't grow up in the church, right? So in, I'll just read parts. This is Acts 10, the very first beginning. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman ar- army officer named Cornelius, who was captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. One afternoon, about 3 o'clock, he had a vision which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Then he goes to explain the vision. The text goes to explain this angel was telling him. So this is Cornelius, a God-fearing man, but he wasn't a Jew. Had a vision. Quick aside, you hear, I read a lot about visions that people, like in Muslim nations, have a vision of Jesus. I'm saying those things still happen. So he has a vision of an angel. Angel says, hey, you're gonna, you need to go find this guy named Peter in this town like 40 miles away, and he's going he's gonna to give you a message. So it says Cornelius was terrified of the vision, but he goes, and then at the same time or simultaneously in the next couple of days, Peter is, has this vision where he sees this image of all these unclean animals come down from heaven and hears this voice saying, eat them. And unclean meaning, according to Jewish law, they were unclean animals, you know, hooved animals and all these reasons that God was telling them to stay apart from the culture. And Peter's like, no, I, I would, I'm, I'm, no, I'm not going to do that. God, I would never violate what I understand your laws to be. But then God says, no, don't, don't call unclean what I'm calling clean. And you can see God setting him up for an interaction with Cornelius because Jews were taught, you don't interact with Gentiles. They're, they're, they're not clean. That wasn't God's point of view, but that was they were taught that they're not clean you never go into their house because that's like entering into a, a place of sin or whatever. That's how it was thought. So Peter is then led by uh, the angel to, hey, when this guy named Cornelius comes, you need to go down and talk to him. So he does. Talks, he ends up going to Cornelius's house back in Caesarea. Talks to his family about, not religion, not God, not moral behavior. He talks to them about Jesus. Jesus is the one appointed for men to have peace with God. So God gets people's attention in another religion, but he brings them to Jesus. That's the, that's the key. Well, I'll call it a formula. That's not a formula. That's the way God would work. That's how we work with these people, right? He would always bring people to Jesus. So then what happens is the, and I'm going to read a little more of 10 here in a second. Then what happens is all the, all the Gentile believers, Cornelius and his family, all, they're filled, says the Holy Spirit fell on them and they began to speak in other tongues. Jesus accepts these people. All right, and then this is what happens next as we're going to be focusing today. So 
Uh, this is the end of chapter 10, verse 44. Even as Peter was saying these things, so he's in Cornelius' house, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too. Go to the next slide. That's the verse I just read. The Jewish believers who came with Peter, they had been one who, like Peter, if they were devout Jews, the thought of going into a Gentile home was horrendous to them, let alone that God would accept the Gentile. They didn't understand the heart of God then. But it says they were amazed, right? Let me just ask a question. I'm not looking for an answer out loud, but what were they amazed at? And you might say, well, it's like they were as amazed at the gift of the Holy Spirit but poured out on the Gentiles. That's what the text says, and they were amazed at that. But if we take the bigger picture, they're amazed that God would do such a thing. They're not amazed at the phenomena. I mean, that's what the, the, the text kind of explains. They're amazed this phenomena is happening. But they're amazed that God would do such a thing with these kind of people. I mean, the word amazed actually is kind of this idea of you stand back kind of like, whoa, what, what, what's happening here? It was kind of shock. And it's, they're amazed that God would do this. All right? Now, kind of zero into your own life now. Maybe people you know that, aren't, that are far from God. Maybe, they're, maybe they grew up in a Christian home. Maybe they grew up in an atheist home. I don't know. Muslim, Hindu, or whatever. And if they were to come to Christ, there's a kind of an amazement. There's kind of like, wow, wow, look what God can do. I'm going back to the enorm- enormity of God's mercy, right? Look what God can do. We never thought that was even possible. So I uh, uh, went to college, a place called Wheaton College, played football there. My sophomore year, we had a defensive coach that was we thought certifiably insane. He was nutty. Um, his name was Coach Kistler. He wore this big orange jacket, so we always called him the Great Pumpkin. He just odd. He was odd, hitting on college girls in the dining hall, and we're like, what, this guy's really weird, and found out later that he actually had a suicide attempt during the season. He was only there for one year, all right? It was just like, this guy is weird. How did he even get an... Christian college. How do you even get in here? He's weird. He's odd. He's incredibly narcissistic. So that was 1980, I don't know, three, two, something like that. Fast forward to the 90s, like maybe even later than that. It was at least 15, 20 years after that. I'm reading the paper and I see that a local church, it used to be called um, what was John Peoples' church called? Presbyterian Church. Grace Presbyterian Church. Just having this special speaker come. And I just always look at the church page. And who's the special speaker? Crazy man, Coach Kistler. I'm just like, well, I see his picture. That's him. I was like, that, there is no way that's him. And he it described him as this powerful speaker about the Bible and about defending the faith and wise, and I'm thinking, this, there's, there's no way. Because this guy was way outside the box of what I thought God could do. So I thought, i got to go hear this guy. And he had been mentored by some big names in the theological world, and I'm just like, 
This, this has to be his twin brother. It can't be him. That's crazy, right? So I go, I can't remember where he was speaking, but I found him and I said, oh, you, you probably don't remember me. I didn't play defense, so I wouldn't know. But I said, I, oh, yeah, yeah. And it, it was him. And I'm just, and, and I was amazed that God could do that. I shouldn't have been. I mean, God could do anything. But I, I, I literally had almost one of this step back moment, like these people are saying, like, oh, wow. There's really nothing outside of what God can do. And he spoke that night with humility, with wisdom, and I thought, he's a changed man than what he was 20 years ago. I was amazed. Maybe you know people like that, too. Maybe you know people that you knew the before and after, but that's the concept here. They were like, wow. And I didn't say it this way, but I probably could have said, the mercy of God is enormous. Wow. I, I thought he was beyond, I mean, I would have never said that, but there's people we think he's beyond redemption. He's way out there. But don't, the mercy of God's enormous, right? So then the, the text continues, uh, chapter 11, and Peter goes back and tells some of the Jewish people from Jerusalem what happened that this, these Gentiles had the Holy Spirit and God was redeeming them. And it, <laughs> we're told in chapter 11. The news reached the apostles and other believers in Judea that the Gentiles had received the word of God. But when Peter went back to Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticized him. What are you thinking? Why, why are you giving them confirmation that the gods with their Gentiles? Paper, there's no way. It's kind of like, almost like me looking at this guy's picture in the paper. There's no way. All right? There's no way. Something's wrong here. But when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticized him you entered the home of gentiles and even ate with them they said and you can imagine that was probably they were probably emotionally charged you entered the home and ate with them that's way outside the boundaries and then peter recounts the story of all that happened and the dreams and the vision and his dream and talking to cornelius and the holy spirit coming upon these people and the obvious evidence of god being there and then we read in same chapter 11, verse 15, so Peter says, as I begin to speak, he's telling all these fellow Jewish critics of his, and these are people that were part of the group of people that had been convinced of the resurrection of Jesus. These weren't the Jewish Pharisees. These were those who were like in the right. They were following Jesus. As I begin to speak, Peter continued, the Holy Spirit fell on them. He's talking about the Gentiles. He fell on us in the beginning, just like he fell on us. He's saying, hey, when I started talking to these people, the Holy Spirit fell on them like it fell on us. You remember what that was like in Acts 2? I and mean, they didn't call it Acts 2 then. but And, and he said, they fell on them. And I thought the, of the Lord's words when he said, John baptized with water, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Said God, Since God gave these Gentiles the same gift he gave us when he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? When the others heard this, but this one on the screen, it's the next verse. When the others heard this, they stopped objecting. And began to praising God. They said, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. All right? This one I highlighted praising God. What are they praising God for? They're not praising God because of this, because they heard about the phenomena of the Gentiles having the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues. They're praising God because of what, what God did and he gave them this privilege. In the previous verse I read about they were amazed. It's the same thing. They're amazed at what God gave. They're amazed at his mercy. So 
at first the, the people who were there at Cornelius' house, the Jews with Peter, they were, they were amazed. And now the Jews back in Jerusalem, when they hear the story, they're praising God. They're praising God because they're amazed that he gives those people the Holy Spirit. They're amazed at God because his mercy is enormous. It's kind of like, oh, wow. And it wasn't, at first they're critical of Peter, so you, uh, like you and me might be, uh, then it's like, oh, and then when they hear the story, they're like, oh, God is merciful. He's not, he's not like excuses. Oh, he's merciful. They didn't, you know, Hitler's going to be in heaven. I'm, that's extreme. I'm just, no, he's merciful to anyone who's seeking him. Right? He's merciful. If somebody, I read recently of a, of a, I can't remember what book it was in, but it was a, a boy who was asking his dad, said, dad, what, what happens to all the people in the jungles? They don't know Jesus. And I thought the dad's response, it's an older book, but I can't, and it was a pastor, but I can't remember what it was. The dad's response to the son was, we'll just have to let Jesus take care of that. In other words, we're going to trust that Jesus knows what he's doing. And the Bible says in the book of Jeremiah, if anybody seeks God, if you seek me, you'll find me with my, if you seek me with your whole heart, you'll find me. So even someone who seeks God who may have been brought up in another religion, they seek God, God will reveal himself to them. The Bible also tells us in the book of, uh, the book of Romans that no one has any excuse to not know God because you can see God in creation. So even in those parts of the world where people may have never heard about Jesus, God says they don't have an excuse because they can know me through creation and I can make myself known to, known to them and he can, I can reveal Jesus to them. In ways, again, we have to leave it to Jesus. So it's not, oh, you can, you can go to heaven if you believe nature is God. That's not what the Bible says. It's like, no. Anybody who's seeking God, Paul even tells the Athenians, God's not far from any of us. He's telling the Greek, non-Christian, pantheistic people, God's close to all of you. But you have to seek him. You have to want to find him. But also what we know in the scripture that absolutely clear is there's no way to know God except through Jesus. So uh, the Bible doesn't say, well, if you're sincere in your faith, you can know Jesus. The Bible says there's no way to know I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father, Jesus said. Peter and Paul say there's no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. And then Paul says in his letter to Timothy, there is only one mediator between God and man, Jesus, one. The only way people can know God is through Jesus. And then you might say, well, what about people in the jungle or whatever? We'll let Jesus take care of that. But Jesus can mediate his relationship with the Father to them in whatever way he wants to. Ideally, missionaries will go there. Somebody will talk to them about Jesus. But Jesus is the only mediator for those people, whether it's India, China, down on Kirkwood, in the jungles. Jesus is the only one who can mediate a relationship with the Father. And only Jesus. It's not like, well, you're sincere at this, and you can know. Not all gods are the same. There's one God, the Bible tells us, First Timothy, Paul writes this, one God, one mediator. It's Jesus. So I go back to, go to the next slide then. The mercy of God is enormous. There are, there are going to be people that, that we find out, maybe, maybe we'll find out in heaven, that we see in heaven, and we're like, oh. Not, we're not going to be surprised they're there because they were... Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, or whatever. 
And I, 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 but we're going to be surprised today. But we find out that Jesus was part of, they knew Jesus somehow. Not, not because of their religion, but what does the Bible tell us? That what God looks for is contrite hearts and humility. And he will find that anywhere in the world he can find it. And he will reveal himself to anybody who's seeking to know God with a contrite and humble heart. Jesus is the only way. And you might say this all seems contradictory, but I, with that opening slide I had, the pictures of all the people of the world. Actually, go back to that opening slide for me just for a second. Yeah, so the question is, how does God deal with these people? Whether it's Cornelius, whoever else, and good answer is, we'll just let Jesus take care of that. But let's say if on those boundaries of this, uh, what is this? Is this a sexagon, what they call it? I, was a, I taught high school geometry. Hexagon. I know that, but sexagon sounds really kind of perverted. Sorry about that. I was like, wow, what? I can't believe I, I taught high school geometry. It's a hexagon. Seven is a septagon. I know that. Seven is a septagon. And 12 is a dodecahedron, in case you don't know that. But let's say if you boundary this with, okay, uh, we know God's love. That's one boundary. We know God is merciful. He doesn't want any to come to be perished. He wants all to come to repentance. We also know that Jesus is the only way. These are things God's already said. He's loving. He's merciful. Jesus is the only way. He's also a God of justice that those who don't follow Jesus will be condemned or don't know Jesus or don't know God through Jesus. But we know he's loving. We know if they, somebody seeks, they'll find. We know Jesus is the only way. And it's like, ah. But then you know what I tell people is? And this is how I've come to the conclusion. In that context, God will be consistent with himself. He will not violate anything he's already said. He will not violate the fact that there's one man, one mediator between God and man, that's Jesus. He won't violate that he wants everybody to come to repentance and none to perish. He won't violate his sense of justice and judgment that the Bible talks about. He also won't violate his own mercy or his own love. And in that context, he will deal with these people in a way that we can totally trust because he's consistent with himself. In the end, God's not going to be like, oh, you know that Bible stuff. We can kind of disregard that because I have some loopholes here. He's not saying that. He's saying, no, everything I said in the Bible is trustworthy. Everything is trustworthy. It's all about Jesus. So again, I go back to, go back to the slide, the mercy of God's mercy is enormous. And again, we, and I'm not, part of the sermon today was I want you to think about how, how God is merciful to other people in ways we don't fully understand. But now I go to the next slide because now I want you to think about that mercy is how God treats you. You know, the, the Lord have mercy is repeated in the Bible many times. The blind men who want to be healed by Jesus, what do they scream at him? Lord, have, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. They were out, religious outsiders. The Canaanite woman, not a Jew. She has a daughter who's sick. Lord, have mercy on my daughter. And then there's a man in the Bible, a Jewish man, the, one of the Gospels that has a son that's oppressed by a demon. He says, Jesus, have mercy on my son. And so this Lord, have mercy, actually, it's probably the most prayed prayer around the world throughout the centuries. Lord, have mercy. If you grew up Catholic, Lutheran, Episcopal, anything, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Because that's the cry of our hearts. God, have mercy on me. I need, I need that enormous mercy in my life right now because I've, I've, I've stumbled a few times. I don't know, I, but Lord, have mercy. I mean, that's the cry. 
there's actually, maybe this ages me. There's a, there's a rock group called Kansas. Who knows the group Kansas? Okay. They have a song that I remember when I, this is, this is years ago, when I listened to it on my cassette player in my car. That ages me a lot too. And the song was, Kyrie eleison on the road that I have traveled. Kyrie eleison. Or Kyrie eleison. It's Latin. Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy. So in, in Russian, it's hospody pomiwi. Lord have mercy. It's, it's the most written about phrase in religious songs throughout the centuries. Lord have mercy. And it's, it's an appropriate, it's appropriate prayer for us who are followers of Jesus. I mean, not in the sense of you might see TV shows where the old woman or the old man, oh, Lord have mercy. No, that is, but it's more of, God, I need mercy right now. And mercy is God extending favor when we have done nothing to earn it, which is all of us. So as we think about the merciful enormity of God toward people like Cornelius or other God-fearing Greeks in the book of Acts, think about the enormity of the mercy that God wants to show you and does show you and will show you. Lord, have mercy on me because I, I don't know what I'm doing in this situation. God, I need wisdom. I need insight. Jesus, have mercy. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a prayer of pitifulness. Like, oh, I'm just, I'm such a, I'm such, I'm such a piece of dirt. God, have mercy on me. It's, no, I'm your, I'm your son, I'm your friend. God, you call me friend, have mercy on me. I need help in this area of my life, in this relationship, in this kind of issue I struggle with. Lord, have mercy on me and give me Holy Spirit, give me the power of the Holy Spirit. Give me your presence in me to deal with this in a right kind of way. Lord, have mercy. So, when you think of the mercy, again, I, you, know, I, you can read the story of Cornelius and we can make it into an apologetic argument about how God treats people around the world who maybe didn't grow up in churches. And yes, his mercy is enormous, always Jesus-centered. But it should lead us to, like any, anything that we understand rightly in theology, should lead us to a right kind of worship. We're like, Lord, have mercy. You are so powerful in my life. And there's nothing in your life that God can't redeem. There's nothing you've done that puts you outside of the mercy of God. There's nothing your family members have done or your friends or people that you know that are far from God. There's nothing they've done that puts them outside of the reach of God. Nothing. His mercy is enormous. So let me pray. I want you to close your eyes. So I just, if you just do this, with your eyes closed, just open one or two hands in front of you and set them on your knees, whatever, just with an openness. And I'm just going to say, I'm going to one, two, three, and I want us all to just allow only for you to hear it yourself. I want you to whisper the prayer, Lord, have mercy on me. All right? And you might even know right now what you're asking his mercy for. You know the situation in your life. You know the struggle, whatever. You know what you need his favor extended to you that you haven't earned. You haven't built up any points for that. We don't, that is how God works. So I'm just going to say one, two, three, and I just want everybody to say, whisper out loud, prayer, hand open, Lord, have mercy on me. All right? Maybe, maybe etch in your mind what it is you're asking for. And if you don't, nothing comes to mind. Maybe God's will pour mercy to you on some future thing you're going to need this week. All right? Lord, have mercy on me. One, two, three. Lord, have mercy on me.
God, we, we are in the same situation as the blind man or the desperate Canaanite mom who a daughter was sick or the desperate Jewish dad whose son was horribly oppressed by a demon that we need your mercy. Yeah, we're, we're your children. We're your friends. We have your spirit inside of us, but we have not stopped needing the enormity of your mercy to our lives. So we love you. you that's, we worship you. We, are, we, like the Jew, we stand amazed at your mercy toward others, but sometimes we don't even think about your mercy toward us. And God, help us be amazed at your mercy toward us. Help us turn and praise you because of your great mercy toward us that we have experienced in different situations or we will experience in the future. That your mercy for us is enormous because that's how you describe yourself, merciful and full of compassion. Yes, you're the judge. Yes, you clearly say what, how we know you, but you're merciful. And uh, we love that about you. We honor you. We worship you. There is no God like you who shows that kind of mercy and compassion for his people. Uh, we love you, Jesus. We ask this all in your name. Amen.